Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana, an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. Ron DeSantis could have come out and distanced himself with Trump and attacked Trump and said that this is absolutely unacceptable. While we need to wait until the facts come out before we judge if he's guilty or not, the conduct in this indictment and potential future indictments clearly make this man unfit to be president. He puts himself over the party and the country. This is terrible. If he had done that in this hypothetical world, Aaron, he would have created a permission structure for other Republicans to follow him. Hello and welcome to The Aaron Rupar Show. Today I'm excited to be joined by Justin Higgins. Justin is a political consultant and the host of the Politics Plus Media 101 podcast. But uh, for the purposes of our conversation today, more interestingly, he is a former RNC operative uh, who worked for the party during the 2016 cycle when, of course, Donald Trump won the nomination and ended up becoming president of the United States. Justin ended up leaving the party shortly after that, uh, as you'd imagine, because of concerns both with Trump's policies and his conduct in office. And so we talk about that evolution, uh, which goes all the way back to Justin working before he came to the RNC for a Tea Party congressman, how he went from uh, you know, working kind of in the trenches as a Republican operative to now being a Democrat who, after he worked for the RNC, worked for the Democratic administration in Puerto Rico. We also draw from Justin's experiences to talk about a lot of present day issues in our politics. Uh, we talk about Kevin McCarthy's speakership and how he is, um, you know, kind of wrought by some of the same forces that John Boehner was back in 2015 when Justin was working in Congress and how he foresees Kevin McCarthy's speakership ending. We also talk a lot about the Republican primary, DeSantis's flailing campaign, and whether it was ever possible for any Republican to defeat Trump in a primary that's looking more and more like it will be a coronation for him. So it's a really interesting conversation uh, with a person who has a fascinating biography in politics, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I've got some really good guests coming up later this month as well. I've got Ruth Ben-Ghiat coming up in a couple weeks. She, of course, is an expert on authoritarianism, both in the European context and here in the American context as well. And then for the last Wednesday of the month, we'll be talking with Melissa Hortman, the Democratic Speaker of the House in Minnesota, about the Democratic trifecta, all the cool things that they just accomplished accomplished in their uh, legislative session that just wrapped up, and what lessons can be taken from the experience in Minnesota for Democratic candidates and other parts of the country um, as the Democratic Party has really dominated in Minnesota, where Republican has not won a statewide election in nearly 20 years now. But without further ado, let's today get to my conversation with Justin. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Aaron Rupar Show. Today, I am excited to be joined by Justin Higgins. Uh, Justin is the host of the Politics and Media 101 podcast, where they have a range of guests talking, as you would guess, politics and media. And uh, I was lucky enough, I think a couple years ago now, to be a guest on your show. I remember that was in kind of the, the deep, dark days of uh, COVID when we were all just basically sitting at home. Uh, but thanks, Justin, for making some time and battling through some Zoom technical problems this morning to uh, join us. No, th- thank you very much for having me, Aaron. Yes, we remember your episode very well. It was back in the days of Clubhouse where we were all going stir crazy and we figured who better to have on about extremism in the GOP, the GOP and the media 
than you. Uh, and it was a great episode. So uh, we'll definitely have to have you back. Yeah, anytime. I'd be happy to do it again. And uh, speaking of extremism in the GOP, um, I, I was kind of broadly aware of your biography that you were a Republican who is now, um, do you identify as a Democrat now? I'm assuming that you do, but. Yes, I have yeah. completely switched over. Sure. And so, yeah, I was aware of that. But, you know, as we were prepping for this show and I, you know, kind of asked you some specific questions about who you work for and um, just kind of your resume, so to speak, um, I was not aware that back in 2016, you had worked for the RNC. And um, of course, uh, we all remember the, the 2016 campaign cycle well, but uh, you know, maybe that's a good place to begin is, um, you know, when, when someone says that they worked for the RNC during 2016, that could mean a lot of things that could be, you know, more working during the primary when the RNC wasn't necessarily endorsing a specific presidential candidate. Um, you know, that could be working on races that are more down ballot. But, you know, tell me a bit about what your job was and what that was like as Trump consolidated control of the party, uh, you know, late 2015 into the summer of 2016. Yeah. So Aaron, I was in the belly of the beast at the RNC. So I joined end of May, right as the primary was wrapping up. It was very clear that Trump was going to be the nominee heading into the general election. And my job was to work on the general election. So I joined as a senior opposition researcher, which is essentially the folks that create the content, create the opposition research, create the talking points that are going to be used by surrogates, but not only surrogates, sometimes even the candidate, right? We'll be working on lines of the speeches. Um, and addition to that, we also worked on opposition research literally. So if Hillary Clinton was giving a speech, we would do rapid response, which is we watch that speech. We then take what she or Bill Clinton said, package it up into some messaging uh, and send it out. And to take a step back, so I was working on the Trump campaign uh, during the general election. And to give it even more flavor, we were the content producers, which is obviously very important because that's what the message is going to be said, uh, what the surrogates and candidates are going to say. But also, um, we were working right under Sean Spicer. So that kind of gives you a picture of what was going on. Not only were we sending things to the Trump campaign, but we were giving Sean Spicer his talking points, working with him on a daily basis, um, interacting with that miserable SOB, uh, and just getting to learn how everything kind of works. Well, Sean actually seems like he would be kind of a fun person. Um, you know, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but you know, just you, you get to know someone's personality when you watch them during those briefings over and over. Of course, the first one that he did, um, the largest crowd to witness inauguration period. I mean, he, he looked kind of psychotic there, but um, yeah, what, what was your experience? Was, I mean, was he someone that you spent time with, you know, kind of when you're off the clock and, um, you know, was he a fun guy to be around? So, I mean, he was around the the building. We didn't spend too much time with him, a little time off the clock, right? So we had to work seven days a week, obviously. We'd come in uh, like 8 a.m. on a Sunday, and it would be nobody in the, the area except for the senior folks in RNC Research and Press, which include Sean Spicer, and then a handful of the research folks that were creating the content, watching the Sunday shows. I mean, he was fun, right? Like you would see him chewing a bunch of bubble gum in the elevator, and then he'd tell you stories about how he swallowed it. So he was approachable. He was nice enough. Um, but it's also easy to be really nice when you are working with people that are way younger than you, working with people mm -hmm. that 
idolize you and view you as some type of, you know, massive big shot. Um, so from that perspective, he was nice, but as you worked with these people, the more higher up you got and the more you interacted with them, I think largely speaking, you realized that they were a combination of two things. Either they were a pathological liar or Mm. they just put themselves above everything else that country didn't matter, party didn't matter. It just mattered about their own personal advancement. So I guess to you, Aaron, how nice can somebody be if their morals and value set are just completely at odds with your own? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I, I'm speaking more that, you know, he went on Dancing with the Stars after his White, White House days were done. And um, he seemed to, on some level, be able to kind of laugh at himself. Although, yeah, I'm not trying to excuse the um, the causes for which he was working, you know, the, the causes for which he was working for in the Trump White House specifically. Um, I had forgotten, actually, that he was at the RNC prior to all of that. But, um, you know, I guess maybe a way to kind of... Uh, bring this conversation a little bit into the present day, but also reflect on your experiences at the RNC is that um, I watched Trump's speech yesterday in New Hampshire, which was just kind of a random campaign speech. And um, it actually reminded me a lot of the speeches that he would deliver back in that 2015-16 cycle. Um, He called Chris Christie a fat slob. Um, He called Andrew Gillum a crackhead. I mean, just very crude, very crass. Um, You know, the thing that I kind of was reflecting on, though, is that a lot of these comments that Trump made and that I posted clips of him saying back in that cycle would have been, you know, kind of like two day news cycles. I mean, remember some of the whether it was mocking the reporter with a disability or, you know, the comments that he said about John McCain not being a war hero, things like that. I mean, these were things that dominated the news cycle back at that time, I think maybe because it was such a novelty to have a serious presidential candidate saying things like that. And now it's just kind of like baked into who Trump is and no one even really bats an eye when he says things like like that. Um, you know, was that crudeness for you? Because obviously your roots, and maybe this is something worth mentioning up front too, is that you worked for a Tea Party uh, congressman. I'm probably going to mispronounce his last name, Tim Hulskamp. Is that correct uh, pronunciation there? Very, very close. Tim Hulskamp. Hulskamp. Okay. Um, it's one of those names that I've read and written a number of times, but never actually said. So uh, glad to get that correct there. But um, and he was known for being somewhat incendiary. Um, you know, there was a State of the Union that Obama gave where uh, Hulskamp was live tweeting it. And he called Rachel Maddow a cheerleader, which made some headlines at the time. And, um, you know, so he was known for saying some incendiary things even back then pre-Trump. But, you know, what was the uh, as Trump was running? I mean, were you offended um, by his crudeness? Was that, you know, what was kind of your reaction as you saw him on, on the campaign trail in 16 when you're working essentially for him? Yeah. So I think my background is really important here to understand like not only how I became a Democrat, but how the Republican Party evolved from the party of Mitch McConnell, John Boehner, Mitt Romney to the party of Trump. So if we go back to 2013, we remember there was a government shutdown spearheaded by Ted Cruz over Obamacare. President Obama was the sitting president. So very obviously, There was never going to be a deal to remove Obamacare, the crowning achievement of President Obama. Uh, And this was just a tactic used by Ted Cruz and the House Freedom Caucus, uh, which they turned into the Tea Party members at the time, to get attention to oppose President Obama. Um, But back then, there was this building momentum within the party um, to, at the grassroots level, to support these type of candidates that were very crude, like you mentioned with Trump, but not only that, that wanted to 
deport all illegal immigrants, even some legal immigrants. That was a big issue. Abortion was another big issue. Healthcare, like we said, was another big issue. It and racism. Finally, the the last pillar of kind of the Tea Party movement at the time, uh, along with government funding. Um, but those pillars of the party. If you are somebody that advocates for these positions, you naturally have to be crude and crass because back in 2013 through 2016, the only people that agreed with you were the Tea Party members, not even regular conservatives, certainly not House and Senate leadership, McConnell and Boehner um, agreed with this overt racism, this overt, let's just ban all abortion approach, at least publicly. They also believed in uh, politics of respectability. And you can go back and look at uh, John Bader meeting with President Obama, something that probably would never happen uh, today or under President Trump, right? With Republicans coming to meet with the leadership of a Democrat. Um, So what I would say is the crudeness and crassness of Trump was an extension of what we saw from the Tea Party members 2010 through 2015. And it was a turnoff to me. What was initially a turn on uh, of Mr. President Trump was I saw this wing of the party growing more powerful. They unseated Speaker Boehner. He had to retire because of them. It was the tail that was beginning to wag the dog. And I saw Trump as a New York liberal because that's what he had been his entire life. So I figured, well, Trump is going to change if he becomes president. He's going to be crude and crass right now. Some of it is funny. Um, and some, he, he's a funny guy in a lot of ways, very hateful. Um, but that eventually he's going to use this material to get elected. And once he's elected, he's not going to attack gay LGBTQ plus people. He's not going to attack immigrants like he was doing. Um, I thought that he could be reformed by Hmm. the elder statesmen of the Republican party. And obviously that was foolish. Hmm. So that, so that's interesting. So it sounds like your, your alienation from, uh, kind of mega Republicans occurred more after Trump took office than before. I would say that I, so I went into Tim Hewell's camp's office and I was the quote unquote establishment staffer. I had worked for a big fortune 400 agriculture business as a lobbyist. So the largest U S agriculture business in Latin America, largest agriculture, agriculture investor in Africa. And my job was to bring this MAGA, proto-MAGA type of member of Congress from the extreme wing where he's focused on social issues, where he lost a committee seat on the budget committee and the agriculture committee because he bucked party leadership. And my job was to mold him, refine him a little bit so that he could get in the good graces with Speaker Boehner and then eventually um, Paul Ryan. So I was never pro-MAGA uh, pro culture warrior type of Republican. It was always the fiscal conservative, more moderate type of social issue Republican. Um, and what really started to alienate me was the crudeness and crassness that you mentioned, right? It was the Hollywood access tape. Uh, it was president Trump going after the gold families, uh, at the The RNC where, uh, the gold star families. Uh, I think it was the Khan family. He started attacking this family whose son died in Iraq serving this country. Um, so those two issues really sparked my concern with Trump. And I knew that I was not going to go into any administration moving forward. But what really broke the, the camel's back here with the Republican Party was that nobody was standing up to him. They just, despite espousing all of these values about military service, about family, about 
the Constitution. Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell did absolutely nothing to stop him. And once I saw that there was going to be no checks and balances on President Trump and that he was going to do whatever he wanted, and as the campaign went on, he did worse and worse stuff, that's when I said, okay, this this party is not for me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And a little sidebar, as I was doing some reading in preparation for this, uh, Hulskamp was defeated in a primary by Roger Marshall, who went on to be, um, of course, a U.S. senator. And part of Marshall's argument was that Hulskamp couldn't really deliver for his district because he wasn't on the Agricultural Committee. And he essentially lost his seat there because um, he couldn't get along with Boehner at the time. So, um, you know, interesting kind of how those things have been flow where Marshall now is kind of known as sort of this crackpot. He was part of the doctor's caucus, kind of an anti-vax doctor in the Senate. But at the time, he kind of positioned himself as being almost like a more moderate option to Hulskamp, who ended up losing in the primary. I think that was in the 2016 cycle. So he didn't actually make it to uh, see Trump become president while he was still in Congress. Yeah. And it's a great example, Aaron, of peeking behind the curtains of how politics actually works for your listeners here, right? So you're right. Hulskamp was extreme. He was a firebrand. Uh, that's ultimately why he lost in his primary. And Roger Marshall did run as a more moderate member. Now Roger Marshall is saying crazier stuff than probably Tim Hulskamp yeah. ever said, right? And it's just accepted. And he, he went from uh, the K- Kansas Congressional 1 district to become a senator. However, there's one big difference between Roger Marshall and Tim Hulskamp. A lot of Tea Party members, a lot of House Freedom Caucus members, that includes Ron DeSantis, who is one of these folks, um, don't believe what they're saying. So they will use these issues. And specifically, the two examples that come to mind are Mick Mulvaney and Mark Meadows. They use these talking points. They use the grassroots energy to advance themselves. Jim Jordan being a third. They, they advance themselves up uh, the ranks, up the cable news shows. Sometimes they become chief of staff of the White House. However, there are some people that actually believe the crazy shit that they say. And that that is Tim Hulskamp and that is Paul Gozar. So they do have more integrity. However, they are very scary. And the difference between Hulskamp and Marshall here, and most politicians need to be careful of this, right? Hulskamp actually believed in cutting government spending. So he voted against the interests in his district, which is agriculture. So mm-hmm. time and time again, he voted against providing subsidies to agriculture companies, despite that being the overwhelming industry in his district. And as a result, nobody cared about any of the things that he said about immigration or the misogyny or the LGBTQ uh, plus hatred. They only cared when the rubber met the road. It was only when he went against their financial interests and a large enough coalition was able to come together and remove him for Roger Marshall. Guess what? Roger Marshall does not go against those interests. So it's Mm, kind of all a kabuki theater almost, right? As long as you do what these people want, they don't care what you say otherwise. Technical production for The Aaron Rupar Show is provided by Studio Americana an audiobook and podcast production company based in Minneapolis, serving clients nationwide. Studio Americana specializes in high-quality recording, editing, and production services. They work with authors and publishers looking to meet the growing demand for audiobook content. Their team of producers and editors ensure the process is easy and efficient. They also assist with equipment, voice coaching services, voice talent for audiobook narration, and professional podcasts. 
If you're ready to get started, go to studioamericana.com forward slash contact to set up a meeting. And I would recommend, you know, kind of related to the points that you were just making. Um, again, as I was prepping for this, I went back and uh, The New Yorker, it's a piece authored by Ryan Lizza from the very end of 2015. And it's about Boehner's, uh, Boehner losing his role as speaker, basically. And, you know, Boehner is interviewed for this piece. But one of Boehner's main allies, who is kind of like the co-star of this piece, is Devin Nunes, um, who kind of comes across in this piece as like this moderate, you know, sensible. He He's talking about how crazy the Hulskamp wing of the House Caucus is. And of course, you know, fast forward a few years and, you know, he's colluding with Trump to try and make it seem like the FBI was spying on uh, Trump during the 2016 campaign. And now, of course, he's running True Social and he's way out there. And so, you know, he would also be an example of that type of Republican who's, who falls into the category of just saying whatever's in vogue at the moment, you know, to stay in the good graces of the base. And of course, he's no longer in elected office. So he doesn't have to worry about delivering for his constituents. But I thought, you know, that was very jarring to me as someone who started covering national politics in 2016, that Nunes, who was always this figure that I knew as kind of this, you know, ultra mega Republican was actually, you know, like a Boehner ally and one of the more moderate members of the House caucus just as Trump was rising. So um, kind of an interesting historical tidbit there. But um, I do want to get to asking you about kind of some for your perspective on um, some current political issues. But I think just for the sake of listeners, it's worth kind of filling in the, the gaps here in that once you um, were done with the RNC, you went on to work for the Democratic administration in Puerto Rico. So just c- kind of briefly talk us through how that came to be and uh, the work you did um, in your first role as a, as a you know, working for a Democratic uh, elected official. Yeah, so I went from Republican policy advisor in Congress to Republican opposition uh, research uh, analyst in the RNC dealing with the media. And then back to doing policy work for Puerto Rico. So I wanted to switch parties really badly. I, I did. I refused to go into the administration under Trump. Um, I was very concerned about our institutions, so on and so forth. Uh, and I just needed to feel like I was giving back. So I went in um, working, became an appointed official for the gov- Democratic governor of Puerto Rico a month before Hurricane Maria hit the island. And As Hurricane Maria hit the island, folks will remember, this is 2017. It's the largest natural disaster to hit the U.S. in 125 years, maybe. My job turned into basically working with the Republican House, Republican Senate, Republican presidency to request $90 billion in financial aid from the federal government to Puerto Rico to help rebuild the island. And ironically enough, I don't know how you'd characterize it, but my experience knowing the crazies of the Republican Party, which at that point were running the entire government, was extremely valuable in understanding how to message to them on serious legislative issues. And it helped get billions and billions of dollars for the government of Puerto Rico that we otherwise wouldn't have gotten. So hmm. I think that it was fortunate that I kind of you know had that misstep early on in my career because later on it, it helped rebuild the island of Puerto Rico a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And and now you are doing basically more kind of like freelance consulting work in addition to obviously hosting the podcast. Yes, sir. Okay, well, good to know. I know. And also, just as a little sidebar, um, I know you were featured in some media reports in 2020 surrounding um, some of the protests that were happening, um, you know, 
both for um, you know Black Lives Matter in DC, but then also some of the protests that were occurring, you know, when Trump uh, brought out the the National Guard essentially to quell those protests. I mean, it kind of became like a cycle of protests at that time. But um, quite quite the turn of events to go from 2016 working for the RNC to four years later at the end of Trump's presidency, be in the streets uh, protesting not only police brutality but you know some of the overreaches of uh, Trump, who at that time, I mean, now we can look back with. Um, you know, some of what we learned in the most recent indictment where uh, there was talk in the White House of using the Insurrection Act to basically quell any protests that would have arisen had Trump tried to seal the election through, um, you know, even more dramatic force than was, you know, than we saw on January 6th. Um, but, you know, you, we can kind of look at some of those June 2020 deployments in D.C. as maybe like a little bit of a test run for that. I, I definitely think so. And I think it was also Trump using political messaging to show that he's willing to use force to harm his opposition. So folks remember 2020 was the George Floyd protests. And you may be wondering, how does somebody who just worked to elect Trump, what was it, four years earlier, uh, go and then not only protest these events of the police brutality and murder of an innocent man, but do so in a way that I got arrested, right? It, it was just for violating curfew. Um, and they arrested folks, the mayor of DC arrested folks literally to tamp down on peaceful protests. The cops were telling us that they were arresting these young kids because they didn't want us protesting another night. Um, but in that whole protest, like you mentioned, Trump ultimately authorized the use of force against all of these protesters. So to move us back from Lafayette Square, what Trump did was he wanted to go from the White House to Lafayette Square to take a photo op with the Bible in the middle of these protests over a heinous act by the Minnesota Police Department. So what he did was he tried to push us all back when folks refused to move. He authorized the use of rubber bullets. So his police and National Guard and whoever else was on duty there was actually shooting not only protesters. Aaron, you got to remember I was like 30 at the time. I was one of the older people protesting. These were mm -hmm. kids, women, and children of all stripes, colors, background. It was a beautiful thing. However, the deranged president thought it was okay to shoot these people with rubber bullets, shoot reporters. Uh, so not only was he violating the press, he was violating the right to protest and freedom of speech. And it was certainly a initial test run potentially for future action, but also it was in that vein of crudeness and crassness that you started off with, which the Tea Party was built on, which the House Freedom Caucus kind of accentuated, which is basically these Republican grassroots voters, the RFK Jr. supporters, the Trump supporters, even the DeSantis supporters, they care less about policy and more about their leaders being willing to inflict pain on their opponents. So this was just catnip heading into the election as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, le and let's bring it up to the the present day and kind of draw from your experiences working on the Republican side of things. Um, curious for your kind of big picture view on the Republican primary. Um, it's kind of, you know, when you go back in time, four or five months, the extent to which DeSantis has become kind of this punchline and like a comical, you know, clownish figure surprises me because I, I really thought there was a lane for him to be the candidate who kind of went out there and called Trump a loser and basically drew the contrast saying, hey, look, I won by 20 points in Florida. 
Trump had to try to overthrow the government to stay in power. Um, you know, l- let's not try that again sort of thing. Now, th- maybe that was naive on my part, because I think that it's a very tough needle to thread in terms of keeping the Trump supporters that, you know, the segment of them that you need to win a primary on side with you, not alienating them while drawing a cr- contrast with Trump. And so maybe it just was never going to be possible for Republican to beat Trump in this primary. What's your view on that? Um, you know, is DeSantis the way that he's running this campaign kind of trying to draw a very subtle contrast while not really attacking Trump? Is that kind of the best that a Republican could reasonably do in this cycle? Or what would, you know, I think it's kind of late in the game now for for someone to emerge, although I guess, you know, maybe, a, you know, Glenn Young and someone like that could could still throw their hat in. But um, you know, what do you make of the DeSantis campaign? And was it even possible for Trump to lose in this primary? So I need to preface it with saying any talking heads you see on MSNBC, and I know you know this, Aaron, but for the audience, any talking heads you see on MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, that make proclamations that they know what is happening or why something happened vis-a-vis an election is full of it. They do not know, right? Look at the 2016 election. We can litigate 10 different things that we think caused Hillary Clinton to lose. I would argue it was James Comey. Others would argue it was not campaigning in Wisconsin in certain states. And there are a whole, uh, others would argue it was Russia, right? There, it, it, that is to say that these elections, it's impossible to ever know for a fact what the um, tipping point was, what factor um, was the deciding one. And usually it's a combination of everything. So that disclaimer aside, right? I do think that it's very unlikely that Trump would have lost to anybody. Uh, and I think that I said that, I don't know, six months ago when I when I had this discussion on politics plus media one-on-one. However, to your point, Aaron, you make a few good points here. Um, for somebody to win, and DeSantis was in that catbird seat, right? He was the one being propped up to be the best challenger. So what would he have had to do to win? He would have had to draw a contrast to Trump which he has not done. So number one, how could he have done that? Number one, his war on woke is fine. You can do that. You can go attack Disney. That That's somewhat acceptable for the um, Republican primary voters. However, that cannot be your main focus. Your main focus must be the economy and, and driving home Republican principles on pro-growth, lower taxes, so on and so forth. And then number two, the second principle of your campaign has to be attacking the front runner. So the way that he could have drawn a contrast with Trump, in addition to articulating the economic policies better, in addition to his background with the war on woke, is during the first indictment, Ron DeSantis could have come out and distanced himself with Trump and attacked Trump and said that this is absolutely unacceptable while we need to wait until the facts come out before we judge if he's guilty or not, the conduct in this indictment and potential future indictments clearly make this man unfit to be president. He puts himself over the party and the country. This is terrible. If he had done that in this hypothetical world, Aaron, he would have created a permission structure for other Republicans to follow him. And if in, if through this permission structure, if um, uh, Mitch McConnell followed him and leaders in the House and leaders in the Senate and outside voices, and they all started to pile on Trump for the first indictment, this would have snowballed. Every single indictment thereafter, you would have heard a cacophony of, of people coming up and basically hitting home the same talking points. Trump is selfish. 
He's putting himself over the country and the party. He's a criminal. He needs to not be our nominee for office. And the last point here is, though, it would have been the drip, drip, drip of information over the course of months and months and months. And potentially through that, maybe Ron DeSantis could have started to break through. But instead, he came out, defended Trump, basically ran a copycat (laughs) campaign. And once you defend Trump on the first indictment, then you can't muddle your messaging. There's no going back and you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. You're, you're kind of screwed at that point. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, the, the dynamics are remarkably similar to 2016 where, um, you know, I guess Rubio eventually in 2016 went negative on Trump, but it was kind of late for that. Um, you know, Cruz, I remember him being very defensive when Trump was attacking his family, his wife, his father, but never really going on offense in a meaningful way either. And it seems like that's kind of doomed to repeat. You know, that history is doomed to repeat in this cycle. And, um, you know, I also think it's notable with this most recent indictment, how the Republican defenses of Trump aren't like they don't even really engage with the substance of the indictment. I mean, Jack Smith literally on page two of the indictment says that Trump had every right to lie about the election um, and even to claim falsely that he won. And, you know, specifies that he's being indicted for basically the conspiracy to disenfranchise voters by taking away their their vote or by, you know, making their vote meaningless. Um, And yet, you know, when you tune into Fox or Newsmax, the Republicans who go on there, you know, basically to a person and defend Trump are saying, well, he's being prosecuted for free speech. And, um, you know, this is an example of the First Amendment being shredded by the Biden administration and, and things like that. And it's just not even um, I guess they're just kind of assuming that their voters aren't going to read the indictment, that they can kind of frame it for them. And that's going to be good enough for them. But I think anybody who even read the first two pages of the indictment would see that that's not what's happening here. So, um, you know, that's kind of demoralizing. But I guess we shouldn't be surprised. It will. No, no. But you're you're hitting on a really good point. Right. So you can basically make up your own reality in right wing media. And that's partially what we did at the RNC. So we would either not me personally, but people in my department would make up a lie on Reddit. Then we'd see it on Reddit. It would grow. It would go viral. Then we'd feed it to the Free Beacon, for example, or Breitbart. Uh, They would get traction with the grassroots activists. Then from Breitbart, we would feed it to Fox News, and we would literally create our own reality. There are countless examples I can give. However, back to the point on DeSantis coming out against Trump, Why is making your own reality important? Because if we remember, DeSantis at one point was very close to Trump in the polls, maybe only 10 points down, five points down, certain polls, national polls, state level polls, DeSantis was actually up and winning in in back in uh, January, December of last year. Um, That was because right wing media was making up their own reality and they were propping up DeSantis as the challenger, as basically Trump without the baggage. Mm -hmm. So if DeSantis had come out against Trump, creating this permission structure that also other elected leaders in the Republican Party followed along, the interesting thing is you had the Murdochs who supported DeSantis. You had Ben Shapiro and his crew of crazies supporting DeSantis. You had a whole host of other right-wing, center-right, moderate Republicans. There were all National Review. They were all ready to support this guy. They probably would have trashed Trump and truly thrown him overboard. And it would have changed everything because to your point, 
Trump supporters aren't going to read the indictment. They uh, largely have a bubble of information that they don't stray from. So if they continually hear how awful Trump is, how selfish he is, how dangerous he is for the party, for their family, that could have had a material impact because of the makeup of the right wing media ecosystem. And that's why it's another reason why it's just such a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And there really was, you know, I think part of what you were talking about when DeSantis had that boomlet in December, I think it was all the way into February, where in the polls, he was basically neck and neck and winning in some, you know, in some in some of the polls. We have to remember that in November, uh, Trump had a very bad cycle last November. I mean, a number of the Senate candidates who he really went out there and endorsed strongly and campaigned for lost. Um, of course, Republicans, you know, barely took the House, did not take the Senate. And then you, by contrast, you had DeSantis with one of the biggest landslides in the country. And I still don't fully understand what changed, you know, why that that um, kind of that contrast or that, you know, storyline that emerged out of the midterms didn't really stick. But, you know, it seems like as soon as DeSantis, it was kind of one of those deals where I think the more that voters got to know him, the less they liked him. And for reasons that kind of go beyond um, policy, I mean, it seems like he just, you know, he's not a very good retail politician. He's awkward. Um Say what you want about Trump. He has a certain weird charisma to him. Um, it's baffling because even you know, yesterday, I, I mentioned earlier the speech that he gave yesterday in New Hampshire. I'm not sure if you saw any clips from it, but he was sweating profusely. I mean, and he even brought it up during, like he was wet. Um, you, know, you see this guy, like this wet guy with an orange face, and yet people love him, you know, but it, it speaks to a certain sort of charisma that he has where you, know, you see these clips of DeSantis trying to interact with voters and it's just so cringy that um, I do think that really damaged him because, of course, a lot of Republican politics is kind of the optics of it and is the presentation in a way that I think even goes beyond, you know, how those dynamics are play in Democratic politics as well. But um, that's weird because, yeah, there, there was a lot of momentum for DeSantis heading into the new year. And then it was like as soon as he got serious about running, um, it blew up immediately. So, so I agree, right? We just went over the strategy and and how that was flawed. Um from focusing too much on woke to not uh, bringing up the economy to not attacking Trump. Uh, you're right. He is not, he's antisocial, right? And I don't mean this to attack somebody gratuitously, but I'm coming to you with kind of unique analysis here that you just don't typically see on, um, you know, the, the cable news outlets, right? What drives the Trump movement, what drives the House Freedom Caucus, which Ron DeSantis was a member of, is defined by the fact that these people are, to a person, man and woman, largely antisocial. So um, from working around the, the halls of Congress, right, working for Tim Kuehl's camp, he was very nice to me. So I feel bad like saying the truth like this. Um, but whether it's Tim Kuehl's camp, whether it's Ron DeSantis, these people aren't guided by policy, right? For the most part, my boss was genuine, but for the most part, these people use policy to virtue signal. They say, I support um, no abortion because that is a virtue signal to the most extreme movements of the grassroots. And those extreme movements of the grassroots have the energy, which means they're going to turn out to vote. However, the way that they walk around in the halls of Congress is, Aaron, they aren't, there aren't four or five of them walking around and being friendly. They aren't going out to dinner with other people. They aren't enjoying being around other people and listening to what they have to say. They are malignant narcissists and they only want to be around people to tell them what to do or tell those people how great that person is. And that 
we will have a government shutdown because of this, but also that explains Ron DeSantis. He was a House Freedom Caucus member. He didn't build up any allies in Congress for the most part, despite being there for a couple of years. Uh, and as a governor, if you go and look at stories about him, he only confides in his wife. He doesn't have any longtime advisors that he trusts. He doesn't open up policy decisions or political decisions and campaign decisions to a room for debate. It's him and his wife making these decisions. And then that translates onto the campaign trail as well. People want to be around extroverts. People want to be around people that enjoy being around other people. And DeSantis just does not have that ability. It's seen in a few different ways. Number one, his team had carefully manicured press availability, right? DeSantis hates the press. So he only spoke to Fox News, Breitbart, Daily Wire, the right wing outlets. He wouldn't interact with your normal outlets. Number two, he doesn't do town halls because he has, he just doesn't want to be around normal voters. He doesn't know how to interact with them. There's no fun. There's no joy. And and we can compare and contrast that to what you just said. Last night, I saw some clips that you posted uh, and others posted on Trump's speech, right? He is sweating like a fat pig. He called Christy a fat pig, right? So he is sweating profusely, but the guy is making fun of himself and he's saying it in a funny way. And then he's saying, oh, whoever's doing this air conditioning, they are terrible. And the whole crowd is laughing because it's an uncomfortable situation Trump is making light of that fact in a way, making fun of himself and showing that he's not too big and too serious for the moment. That's what resonates with people. It's that sense of humor, that sympathy that kind of can can get across. And DeSantis just does not have any of that. And it tracks with why he was a member of the House Freedom Caucus. Yeah, no, great stuff there. And we just have a, a few minutes left, but I want to quickly get um, your perspective on two more things. Um, we don't have enough time to really do these topics justice. But one thing I want to ask you about, um, you know, maybe this is just the part of me that listens to too many Bulwark podcasts. Um, but, you know, I do have the sense that kind of an underrated dynamic in 2020 that helped Biden was peeling off, you know, a number of uh, formerly Republican voters who were just kind of repulsed by Trump. Um, you know, and Biden brought enough to the table as kind of like a moderate Democrat, at least, you know, at, at that time when he was campaigning to um, win their support. What do you think it takes, you know, will take going forward 2024 and beyond for Democrats to keep those voters on side with them and not go back to voting for Republicans? If the Republicans continue to run on abortion, which they will, if Republicans continue to keep Trump their nominee or the soul of their party, which uh, at least in 2024, uh, they look like they're going to do. And if Democrats continue to have a quote unquote moderate candidate like a Joe Biden or in 2028, like a Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar, uh, that's enough. And that means that these crossover Republican voters will be voting against the GOP because of Trump and abortion. And the Democratic candidate to them is palatable. Right. It's not so far out the the mainstream or it's not a candidate that the Republicans can paint legitimately as being outside of the mainstream. The more interesting answer here is that as long as these dynamics, which we see in 2024, are to hold and as long as Democrats continue their messaging on key value issues that resonate with these voters, 
So for example, they keep hitting Tommy Tuberville, a Republican, for being against the military. They keep hitting Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy for being close together and unrelenting bigots. Um, What you're going to have happen is what happened to me personally. So you become a Democrat because you are so repulsed by the Republican Party. But the longer you stay a Democrat, the longer you listen to folks like Aaron Rupar and other uh, Democrats say healthcare for all is good, these ideas that you initially held as bad or you're not in favor of, like healthcare for all, like government spending in certain cases, um, you have now a permission structure where if I listen to Aaron Rupar and he's telling me how bad Trump is and I know how bad Trump is and I believe in free choice and I know how bad the GOP position of free choice is and I keep listening to him and I keep agreeing with him. And then the next day he starts talking about healthcare. As long as I am still in that anti-Republican, anti-Trump camp, the longer I am, the more likely I am to just resonate with other policy positions and become a Democrat. So it's really just time and there will, there will be assimilation from the vast majority of these voters and they are not going to go back to the GOP. I don't know if the bulwark says that, but that's kind of my perspective. Yeah, I, I think that uh, they like to kind of pretend that they're still somewhat anti-Biden, you know, that, that, and that those are the episodes I don't listen to because I'm not there for that. I'm, I'm there for them talking about the their party um, because I don't really view like a Charlie Sykes as being a Democrat per se, and I don't think he does either, but um, he would he would acknowledge that he voted for Biden and is likely to do so again. Um, very last thing for you, and again, if you can do this in two minutes or less, I, I want to respect our producer's time here, but I'm very curious to get your thoughts on how the Kevin McCarthy speakership ends. Oh, that's a good one. So he took the opposite approach of Boehner. So John Boehner largely did not negotiate with the Freedom Caucus. He kicked folks off their committee. And then when it became clear that he either had the chance of listening to the House Freedom Caucus or sending the United States to a debt default, he ultimately resigned, um, fell on his own sword, and created a compromise deal that two-thirds of the Republicans voted against and was carried by Speaker Pelosi, Senator Harry Reid, President Obama over the finish line. So he worked with Democrats to put the country first. Um, I do not think Kevin McCarthy is going to do that. I think he is on some extremely thin ice here because of the uh, debt default agreement that he struck with Democrats, which uh, he negotiated with Biden just poorly. Biden out-negotiated him uh, drastically. Um, So it's to the point where the House Freedom Caucus members who are antisocial, like we mentioned, who don't truly have policy priorities, but they use these policy priorities to virtue signal and get themselves media, they are really frustrated. And from their perspective, they need to bring a win home. So Kevin McCarthy could do one of two things. He can shut down the government and move to impeach President Biden, and he can hope that that can be enough. Or he can reject both of those notions um, and ultimately try and stand up to these folks and lose his speakership. I think what's going to happen, there's going to be a government shutdown. I think that there's likely going to be an impeachment of President Biden, which is insane for a variety of reasons. It's going to cost moderate Republicans their seats in the House. Um, And then I think depending on how the government shutdown resolves itself, that will depend, that will determine McCarthy's fate. So the way that it's in closing here, the way that it's likely to resolve itself is 
the Senate Democrats, Senate Republicans, Joe Biden, House Democrats are all against the government shutdown. They all largely can agree on a compromise bill. The media is going to understand that. They are going to start hammering Senate, uh, House Speaker McCarthy as the stock market tanks, as uh, the shutdown drags on. And ultimately, he's going to have to capitulate or Democrats are going to bring a discharge petition to the floor. And there will be some type of compromise bill that the House Freedom Caucus does not like. And that could end in a motion to vacate the speaker and McCarthy could lose his job. So I think it's basically he's just not going to be able to keep it. And that was, you know, because Boehner did try to um, appease a little bit the Freedom Caucus just in kind of staying out of their way when they wanted to shut down the government. Um, As you mentioned, McCarthy kind of caved on the debt ceiling. um, And that has kind of created the conditions for this impeachment inquiry. Um, that we're certainly going to have, I think, as soon as the second week in September when when Congress finally comes back after their very long recess. But uh, Justin, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate your insight. Fascinating conversation. And uh, we'll be happy to rejoin you on Politics Media 101 sometime soon as well. Thank you very much for having me, Aaron. That's it for today. Thanks for tuning in. New episodes of the Aaron Rupar Show drop every Thursday. Please like the show uh, on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your circle. Thank you for tuning in.